This afternoon, we confess together the Belgic Confession, Article 1, about the nature of God. Let's confess together. We believe in the heart and confess with the mouth that there is a unique and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, and infinite, who is wise and the overflowing source of all good things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, please impress upon us as we hear your word preached that you are a good God. Help us to know that in spite of our sin, you have forgiven us of that sin through Christ, thereby proclaiming your goodness to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. The scripture lesson comes from Psalm 73, all verses. You can find that on page 485 of your pew Bibles. Once again, we hear God's word from Psalm 73, all verses, page 485. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek, they are not in trouble as others are, they are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice loftily, they threaten opposition. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. My soul was embittered when I pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, 
that I may tell of all your works. The word of God so far. Congregation of Christ and Friends, this afternoon we uh, finalize our sermon series on the attributes of God and we examine the attribute of God's goodness. But it's hard to understand God's goodness without first understanding what the word good means. Well, good, as you know, is an adjective. It describes something. When we call something good, we are attributing value to it relative to some standard. The standard for a good thing or a person defines something that is desirable, something that is positive, excellent, beneficial, complete, or virtuous. For instance, we call some food good, but this standard is relative. Some people think that fancy French food is really good. Others think that common American fare is good. In this case, it is relative. Goodness is relative to a person's individual taste. But you can also talk about the soundness or general quality of food. For example, if someone has you taste the milk in the fridge, you know right away whether it is good or bad. That is, if it's fresh or if it is spoiled. Goodness is what is excellent, the gold standard, a goal for which is sought the proper end. It can be relative to a person's desires, say to sports, I think that fencing is the best sport or whatever, or it can be absolute. Justice is the chief virtue for all people at all times. The scriptures reveal that God is good in an absolute sense. So we hear our Lord's words in Luke chapter 18, verse 19. No one is good except God alone. Jesus also says in Matthew 5.48 that your heavenly Father is perfect. Same thing. Now, last week we defined uh, the holiness of God as God's perfect essence. He is pure being, untainted by sin or evil in comparison to mankind who is sinful and evil. The scriptures reveal that God's goodness as a perfection of virtue or moral excellence. That's what it is. That is, God's character is perfect or just. Therefore, knowledge, wisdom, power, love, and righteousness are uniquely His. That is, they are uniquely His in a divine manner. So simply put, God is morally perfect or good. And that's how we define God's goodness, God's moral perfection. Well, God reveals this goodness to us in the scriptures, the Bible. And even then you can't grasp His goodness comprehensibly. The way in which God reveals His goodness, though, is in His acts of creation and redemption. As you look around uh, the world in which you live, uh, specifically as you look at the Scriptures as they reveal God and His attributes, especially in the Gospel, you understand the goodness of God. And so we will uh, briefly take up Psalm 73 as an example, as a lens through which we can understand God's goodness much better. Now Psalm 73 is considered a wisdom psalm. Or we could say it's a psalm about the good life. The good life is a life centered on the Lord and the fear of Him. You know well that the wisdom literature of the Bible, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, uh, say that the beginning of wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. 
Knowledge, wisdom is found in the fear of the Lord. So those who are blessed are the ones who focus on the Lord, who make the Lord their God, uh, to, in contrast to those who are wicked, that find no joy or happiness in the Lord. Now the setting of many of these psalms, the wisdom psalms, is the creation. That is, the psalmist makes observations about the good life among the common activities of life in which people work and live. The psalmist in Psalm 73 opens his poem by stating something that is true absolutely. He says, Truly, truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. No, here it does not mean uh, pure in heart or those who are perfect. It means those who uh, care to worship God according to his own way. But then he quickly confesses that he almost lost a step because he became envious of the uh, prosperity of the wicked. He continues in the psalm to say that while he has suffered in many ways, the wicked have not. In fact, the wicked have done well. He argues that life has been very good to them. Hence it appears that God has been good to him. Even though the wicked have been arrogant and have boasted, verse 9, and have even turned God's people to themselves, verse 10, they have increased in riches according to verse 12. The psalmist confesses that while he has kept his heart clean and has washed his hands in innocence, this has appeared to be in vain. His sickness, his troubles have continued, but the wickedness has not. Now think about what the psalmist is saying here. He is making observations about the good life. The good life in terms of creation does involve things like good health, money, and generally a sound existence. This is how people think of the good life. Example, a common way for someone to greet you on the street is to say, how are you doing? Usually you say, I'm doing well or good. Now, of course, if you're really honest, if things were not going well, you would say so. Oh, thank you for asking, but you know somebody in my family just died, or I lost my job, or my health has been really terrible. But all this to say that when people ask you that question, really what they're asking is they're asking, is your life good? And these are the things that are naturally a part of a good life. Health, money, work, and so on. And to operate according to this belief is correct on one level. The good life, in part, involves all of these things. A healthy family, enough money to live, and significant work with which to busy your hands. The wisdom literature in the Bible is wide awake to this. Life lived under the sun, as Solomon puts it in Ecclesiastes, is good when you have good food, good drink, and have work to do with your hands. This is a constant refrain in his book. And this makes sense when you consider a theology of creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates on each day, and what does he say at the end of the day? And it was good. God created man in his image, a part of creation which he called very good. And after the flood, God sent man back into his renewed creation and reaffirmed that creation was good, giving it to mankind as he had originally to take care of it. Finally, James says this, Every good gift 
and every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Every good gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. So the correctness of the psalmist then is seen in his observation that some people have the good things in the creation to enjoy. And there's nothing wrong with that. What is wrong, as the psalmist eventually confesses, is believing that the unrighteous are getting away with their wickedness and God is somehow ignoring him in his distress. And how many times have you thought that? My neighbor, who is a complete pagan, who denies God, is doing great. Good health, has a great job, I envy his vacations, but my back is killing me, I'm having a lousy time at work, my life is terrible. And you just say, why God? Why does he do so well and I do so poorly? That's what the psalmist is saying. But further, there is an irony to the psalmist's observation about the unrighteous. Notice, the fact that they enjoy the goodness of the creation should remind him that God is good. The goodness of food and drink and riches only comes from God, who is a giver of all good gifts. You should praise God that somebody else, even the unrighteous person, is doing well. Because why? God is a father of lights. And every good gift comes from his hand, even to the unjust. And faith such as that will change the heart towards those who deny God. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45. He says, I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And he makes his son rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Jesus here argues in part that an understanding of God's goodness, even to the unjust, allows you to let God take care of the judging. All you need to do is vest your faith in God, who in a common way is good to all because he is necessarily a good God, even to the unjust. So in summary... You understand God's goodness by observing the creation. The psalmist does this, though, unwittingly. He observes that he would consider the good life among the unrighteous. They have food, they have drink, and work to do with their hands, which has produced riches. How good they have it, he says. And necessarily, these good things come from the hand of God, which means that God is good. That is, he takes care of his people in the creation, giving them the proper desires of creatures made in his image. The pagan neighbor is still created in God's image. He does not have a moral image that pleases God, but nonetheless, he's created in God's image. He has certain desires which are proper. Good food, good drink, to have a good life. This is common to all people, and God has chosen to give him good things. That should not make you envious. It should not make you angry. You instead should praise God, for he is good. Good even to the unjust, just like Jesus says. 
So even though the psalmist mistakes God's goodness to them as shunning him, he quickly comes to his senses. He realizes that Jesus' words in the future are true. God is good in a common way to the unrighteous, but they will suffer his wrath on the final day if they do not repent. God's goodness then extends to and is more profound in the realm of redemption. So the shift in thinking and believing for the psalmist occurs in verses 15 and following. He was tempted, according to verse 15, to speak thus. That means to speak boastfully and challenge God like the wicked did. But if he would have done so, he would have betrayed the generation of God's children. That is, the psalmist would have been denying what is so obvious. God has been good to Israel. So that's where the shift takes place there in 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Your children being Israel. Past generations. God has indeed been good to them. Who am I, says the psalmist, to deny that? And so when the psalmist goes into the sanctuary, that is into the temple, it's revealed by God to him that the wicked will have a terrible destiny. Somehow it was revealed to him, prophetically, perhaps through some supernatural occurrence, that the wicked would have this terrible end. That one day they will fall into ruin, they would be destroyed and swept away. The key word here is end. The psalmist understands that their end or their destiny or their outcome is bad. Not good. God will punish the wicked on the final day for eternity in hell. In light of this kind of life, the wicked have lived, you can see their folly of what they have defined as a good life. Now surely the pagan neighbor is saying, I have a good life. I have the health, I have the wealth, vacations, the great job, whatever it is. They focus on the good things of creation to the exclusion, though, of the giver of those good things. To seek the good in this life is to seek the proper end. Again, that involves a proper definition of the good. There is a proper end. It is pure folly not to seek the Creator and Redeemer in Christ Jesus. For Christ is not only the Creator, but the Redeemer, and true happiness and true satisfaction is found in Him and His Gospel. This is so because all people are sinful and fall under the wrath of God. But forgiveness of sin and eternal life is found in true faith in Christ alone. And so ultimately, the psalmist has this faith. Verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. It's a marvelous confession, isn't it? As the psalmist worshipped God in the temple, God revealed to him that he pursues him and holds him by his right hand. Remember, when he goes into the temple, he's there in the presence of God. And this, this uh, phrase, he holds you by the right hand, is very interesting. In context, in, in this time, to be held by the right hand is to be uh, given a position of honor. If the king holds you by the right hand, you're honored. If the king of kings, God holds you by the right hand, how much more are you honored in the sphere of salvation? And moreover, God will receive him to glory, he says. This is not just a reference to eternal life. 
Glory here refers to happiness on earth leading to the final day of salvation. And not happiness in the mere uh, bodily sense, but godly happiness that finds rest in Jesus Christ and His righteousness. That is the psalmist's proper end. So notice here what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, receive me to glory includes not only the eternal life, but the life you have now leading up to that final day. In other words, he's saying that you can and shall be happy now in God. So therefore, the good life is not what it appears. People can get all the health and wealth they want, but if they do not know Christ, then it is folly. Further, as Christians suffer in contrast to the wicked, their suffering must be defined by God's redemptive activity in Christ, both at the cross and in the final day. The fact that you are justified by grace through faith now means that you will be received by Christ on the final day despite what happens in this life. And that's what the psalmist is saying here. Don't look around at your neighbor to see how much stuff he or she has. And if you notice that, thank God that God was pleased to give it to him or her. And don't have this attitude that says, Lord, you've made me suffer, suffer, so you've ignored me. Not at all. He's made you to suffer because He loves you. Because He sanctifies you. Again, that's what we mean by framing this situation redemptively. You don't always grow when you get all the good stuff of life. And again, it's good stuff. You thank God when you have it, but actually you thank God too, too when you suffer. That's what James says. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you suffer trials. Because God sanctifies you through them. That's what the psalmist says. So in conclusion, God's goodness is clear from the creation. God has created all things good and has given these good gifts to people. But God's goodness is even clearer in redemption. We call the work of Christ on our behalf what? The gospel, which is what? Good news. God's goodness is seen here in His grace, His mercy, and love. For He has credited the righteousness of Christ to you when you had incurred debt, when you owed Him. He has been merciful to you, saving you eternally instead of destroying you like you deserve. That's the goodness of God. Finally, He has loved you when you were yet sinners, pouring out His wrath on His Son instead. And so you confess to the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, amen.